What might life be like on other worlds? Why would there be life on other worlds? What is the purpose of that? These questions are answered in this edition of the podcast on the Arantia book about a recent article about exoplanets being discovered and how that is squarely addressed on the pages of the Urantia Revelation. Let's explore what life might be like on other worlds and where we can find them based on clues given to us by the Revelators, this time up on the Urantia Radio Podcast. You're an interesting species, an interesting mix. You're capable of such beautiful dreams and such horrible nightmares. So I ran across this article the other day. This is from Science Magazine, and the headline reads, A planet almost exactly Earth's size has been found 72 years or 72 light years away. Date is 6th of February, 2023 by Michelle Starr. I'll just read a little bit with you, and then we'll compare some notes on some interesting things that I can juxtapose with this article. And it gets really exciting because this article sort of barely scratches the surface on what's at play here and what's being discovered and what this new telescopes are showing us uh, as we look for life outside in in the universe, in our our area of, of space. And so Michelle writes, We've just found an exoplanet almost exactly the same size as Earth orbiting a tiny star not very far away at all. It's called K2415b, and its similarities and differences to our own home world might shed some light on how Earth-like planets form and evolve in different ways. And that's what we're going to talk about this time up on the podcast because there's a lot of effort dedicated to explaining to us in the Urantia book how life forms evolve in different ways with great specificity, and we'll talk about that. And again, we'll sort of overlay what this article is telling us about a recent discovery and then what the Urantia book has to say about what kinds of life forms are created. So Michelle writes in this article from from Space, quote, small planets around M dwarfs are a good laboratory to explore the atmospheric diversity of rocky planets and the conditions at which a habitable terrestrial planet can exist, writes an international team of astronomers led by Teriyuki Hirano of the Astrobiology Center in Japan. Here's what he writes. Being one of the lowest mass stars known to host an Earth-sized transiting planet, K2-415 will be an interesting target for further follow-up observations, including additional radio velocity monitoring and transit spectroscopy. Uh, The research has been accepted for publication in the Astronomical Journal and is available on preprint server ARXIV. The Milky Way galaxy, the article writes, is a big place with lots of interesting worlds in it, but so far it has proven evasive on one of the biggest questions humanity has ever asked. Why are we here? And not just why, but how? And why this planet? And is there anywhere else out there where life could potentially happen? Since Earth is the only place in the universe where we know for a fact life has emerged, one of the tools that could help deliver answers is a population of exoplanets that are similar to Earth, similar in size, composition, temperature, mass, perhaps even planetary system architecture. 
The best population of exoplanets to start this research are small Earth-sized worlds orbiting small stars relatively nearby in such a way that they transit or pass between us and the star, and that's because they're the best candidates for characterizing an atmosphere. As an exoplanet passes in front of a star, a fraction of the star's light will pass through in an atmosphere with some wavelengths on the spectrum being absorbed or amplified by elements in the atmosphere. Around smaller, dimmer, cooler stars like red dwarfs, the habitable temperature zone is much closer to the star than it is around a star like the sun. This means that the orbital period is shorter. So many transits can be recorded and stacked to amplify the spectrum data. And obviously, closest stars will appear brighter, which makes up such observations easier. And then they go on to write, Small exoplanets, however, are harder to find than larger ones. Within 100 light years of the solar system, just 14 exoplanets smaller than 1.25 times the radius of the Earth have been found orbiting red dwarf stars, including all seven worlds of a system known as TRAPPIST-1. And this is where we can go now over to the Urantia book, because what they're presenting to us in this article is, A, they've discovered a star that's about 72 light years away from us. It's about the same mass as our, our planet, but it's much closer to the sun, and it has a, 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 a their annual uh, circumference around the sun is eight days. So that thing is whirling around pretty fast, and it's not likely, at least... Uh, from this author's point of view, that it will be a, a life-bearing planet. But what they're saying is that these are what the these are the kinds of planets we're l looking for: planets that are in that Goldilocks zone, planets that are the same size as our planet, and the same distance relatively from the sun. And then, of course, if if it passes those, you know, litmus test, then you look at the atmosphere. Does it have water in it? Well, now let's look at what the Arantia book says about our system. Now, our system happens to be called Satania, and not to be thrown off with the word Satan, but bear in mind that Satania as a system has been around for a very, very, very long time, much longer than, you know, a few billion years. Uh, the name Satania, which was designated our world, has nothing whatsoever to do with anything having to do with the rebellion. It just happens to be the name of our system, and our system it says, is comprised of 619 worlds at this stage that have life-bearing planets. So there's a revelatory piece of information that the Urantia book is claiming. It's claiming that in our system, which is named Satania, which is comprised of the potential of a thousand worlds, so far 619 worlds have come into existence in this grouping of, of planets that circle stars and have solar systems. So you could almost say from that, and you can extrapolate that our system is 61.9% complete. 619 worlds, eventually there will be a thousand. So we're a little more than halfway to that point where Satania will have exhausted its number of uh, planets that bear life. And then another system will be coming into place. Uh, and so that's how they sort of describe systems as part of constellations, which are a part of local universes, which comprise 
our universe of, of Uversa or Orvington, our super universe. And I don't want to get too caught up in the weeds, but let's just zero in on Satania itself. And this, here's how they describe it. There are upward of 2,000 brilliant suns pouring forth light and energy in Satania. And your own sun is an average blazing orb. Of the 30 suns nearest yours, only three are brighter. So in that last article, when they state that, uh, that they're looking for exoplanets, they say that most of the suns that are nearby us are, are, a little, are, are about the same, M-dwarf planets or M-class. -M they go on to say that these solar furnaces, together with the dark giants of space, which are, as we know, black holes, serve, the power, serve as power centers and physical controllers as way stations for the effective concentrating and directionizing of energy circuits of the material creations. So these suns that are in our system, uh, together with the black holes of space and minch gravity centers, serve as power centers and they emit energy uh, that comprise an energy circuit that is used. Isn't that interesting? The suns of Nevadon, which is our local universe, is also comparable to other universes. And the material composition of all suns, dark islands, planets, and satellites, even meteors, is quite identical. These suns have an average diameter of about one million miles. That of your own solar orb is slightly less than a million miles. Satania itself is an unfinished system containing, containing only 619 worlds, and such planets are numbered serially in accordance with their registration as inhabited worlds. So here's a revelation from the Arantia book. It's telling us that in our system, there are 619 worlds. We're planet 606, and they become planets in accordance with registration of inhabited worlds by will creatures. Thus was Gerantia given the number 606, meaning the 606 world and the local system on which the long evolutionary life process culminated in the appearance of human beings. There are 36 uninhabited planets nearing the life endowment stage, and several are now being made ready for the life carriers. There are nearly 200 spheres which are evolving so as to be ready for life implantation within the next few, few million years. Not all planets are suited to harbor mortal life. This is from paper 49. Small ones having a high rate of axial revolution are wholly unsuited for life habitants. This is I was explaining about this new planet 412b. In, other, uh, in several of the physical systems of Satania, the planets revolving around the central sun are too large for habitation, their great mass occasioning oppressive gravity. So many of these exoplanets that we see are much larger, which is confirmed by our astronomers. We see we tend to find larger planets because they're easier to spot. Now the Arantia book makes a, dis a disclosure. He says many of these enormous spheres have satellites, sometimes half a dozen or more, and these moons are often insides very near that of Urantia, so they are almost ideal for habitation. So here's what they're revealing to us that might aid us in our, in our discovery of exoplanets. 
instead of looking at the the masses that circle a particular sun, which may be too large or perhaps too close to the sun, let's see if we can find exoplanets that circle these large bodies, these large spheres that circle the solar orbs. Go back and take a second look. That's a little easier to spot a planet as it passes through the light of the sun. And it might be more challenging, but perhaps with our new spectro, whatever that, do uh, that doctor said, that astronomer, spectroscopy, maybe they can spectroscopy uh, a, uh, an exoplanet that passes around another larger sphere. The oldest inhabited world of Satania, world number one, is named ANOVA, A-N-O-V-A, one of the 44 satellites revolving around an enormous dark planet but exposed to the differential light of three neighboring suns. Now here's a, a little tidbit of trivia. ANOVA, ANOVA, the first world to have will creature appear on its, on its surface, is now in an advanced stage of progressive civilization. Remember, they're in our system. So they could be one of those 30 orbs spinning so close to us. If you remember in the first paragraph where it reads, there are upwards of 2,000 brilliant suns in Satania. Of the 30 suns nearest yours, that's a great clue. Because it's basically saying, look at the 30 closest suns and look for large spheres. Now, what kind of life might we find? Now, in the article, it goes into the specifics of what are the ingredients for life, temperature, light, oxygen. And the same is, is held true in the Urantia papers, some paper 49. Let me just read to you. It says, The universes of time and space are gradual in development. The progression of life, terrestrial or celestial, is neither arbitrary nor magical. Cosmic evolution may not always be understandable, predictable, but it is entirely non-accidental. The biological unit of material life is the protoplasmic cell, the communal association of chemical, electrical, and other basic energies. So now we're getting, we're getting taught what is the commonality of life as it appears throughout these different spheres surrounding us in our local creation. The chemical, the chemical formulas differ in each system, and the technique of living cell reproduction is slightly different in each local universe. But the life carriers are always the living catalyzers, as they were on our world, who initiate the primordial reactions of material life. They are the instigators of the energy circuits of living matter. So it is literally true, as some have suspected. That, that life did not arrive spontaneously on our world, but it was planned, it was instituted, it was catalyzed by a life carrier son, a spiritual agent of a divine order. All of the worlds of a local system disclose unmistakable physical kinship. Nevertheless, each planet has its own scale of life, no two worlds being exactly alike in planet and animal endowment. Here's another nugget as they continue to describe what kind of life evolves. In the development of planetary life, the vegetable form always precedes the animal and is quite fully developed before the animal patterns differentiate. 
all animal types are developed from the basic patterns of the preceding vegetable kingdom of living things. They are not separately organized. What kinds of evolved humans are there out there? Well, the Urantia book tells us. It reads, The present atmospheric status of Urantia is ideal for the support of the breathing type of man, but the human type can be so modified that it can live on both the super-atmospheric and the sub-atmospheric planets. Such modifications also extend to the, the animal life, which differs greatly on the various inhabited spheres. There is a very great modification of animal orders on both the sub- and the super-atmospheric worlds. Of the atmospheric types that comprise our local system, about 2.5% are sub-breathers. About 5% are super-breathers. 91% are mid-breathers. We would be considered a mid-breather planet. Being such as the Arantia races are classified as mid-breathers, you represent the average type or typical breathing order of mortal existence. If intelligent creatures should exist on a planet with an atmosphere similar to that of your near neighbor Venus, they would belong to the superbreather group. While those inhabiting a planet with an atmosphere as thin as that of your outer neighbor Mars would be denominated subbreathers. If mortals should inhabit a planet devoid of air, like your moon, they would belong to a separate order of non-breathers. This type represents a radical or extreme adjustment to the planetary environment and is separately considered. So that's interesting because they do also reference a little bit later in this paragraph that we would be more than, this is from paper 49, section 3, paragraph 6, you would be more than interested in the planetary conduct of this type of mortal because such a race of beings inhabits a sphere in close proximity to Urantia. What they're saying specifically is that there is a planet or a sphere, perhaps even in our own solar system, where there is a non-breathing form of life that we may yet discover. Now that's an interesting, uh, uh, what do they call those, treasure hunt? Uh, reading from paper 49, continuing on, there are great differences between the mortals of the different worlds, even among those belonging to the same intellectual and physical types. But all mortals of will, dignity, are erect animals, by bipedal. There are also varying races that comprise each world, sometimes three primary races, red, yellow, and blue, sometimes all six, including the three secondaries of orange, green, and indigo. Most inhabited worlds have all of these races. Many of the three brain planets harbor only the three primary types, but some local systems also have only three races. Uh, and it goes on to explain the different types, but the commonalities include that they are bestowed with mind, the infinite spirit, and uh, it functions within the mortal body. The mind of mortals is akin, it says in paper 49, regardless of certain structural and chemical differences which characterize the physical natures of the will creature of the local systems, regardless of personal or physical planetary differences, the mental life of all of these various orders of mortals is very similar, and their immediate careers after death are very much alike. 
And then uh, it concludes this paragraph, despite all of the differences between spheres and different type of life forms, mortal mind without immortal spirit will not survive. The mind of man is mortal. Only the bestowed spirit is immortal. Survival is dependent on spiritualization by the ministry of the spirit, a jester. On the birth and evolution of the immortal soul, at least there must not have developed an antagonism towards the adjuster's mission of affecting the spiritual transformation of the material mind. So these evolutionary worlds are the spawning grounds of potential soul ascenders. And this particular paper, 49, describing our local system and the different life forms, substantiates that point, which is these are intended to produce beings of will status who will ascend on to spiritual careers. And we are hence the lowest form on that ladder of the the descending sons of God, starting with the sons and then working their way down all the way eventually till they get down to the mortals of the various time and space spheres. And that's what the Arantia book reveals to us. So it's interesting again, you know, there's clues here on where we could find life and also what kinds of life we may discover in the decades and centuries ahead. Very interesting. And I I just wanted to share that with you, spawned by uh, a pretty good article that I read in a recent edition of science.com. Maybe you'll check it out too. And, And if you've got any questions or comments about this particular subject, I'd be happy to read more or share more with you. But I found in this particular segment very fascinating as we seek for life outside of our own world. Inside the Revelation, the Urantia Book Podcast, I'm Jim Watkins. Until next time, God bless, and thank you again for stopping by. You're an interesting species, an interesting mix. You're capable of such beautiful dreams and such horrible nightmares. You feel so lost, so cut off, so alone.